this is where we work. Start that again, will you? This is where we work a good part of the time, mostly in the winter when it's cold and we can keep this place controlled, temperature and humidity, especially downstairs. And we're working on all sorts of things here. This is the parts of an alto violin, which has a good deal of sound in it, and the plates that you can tap and listen to what the sound does in all sorts of different ways. We can talk about that later. She's got an interesting paradigm because she's inclusive from the start. She's interested in anybody who wants to talk fiddles. Open the door, ring the doorbell. You know, she'll give you the tour and she'll talk about plate tuning. We're trying to tune these plates so that the mode two and mode five are an octave apart and at the same frequencies in both the top and the back. That's quite a trick to do that when we're really working on this kind of thing. We're gonna go for mode number five in this particular piece of wood right now. And that will give us an idea of how it's going to vibrate when it gets into the finished instrument. I'll need to put these on because it's a lot of sound and I don't wish to go deaf. This is how Carlene Hutchins built instruments, with sound. I mean, she used woodworking tools too, but it was this step, blasting a piece of wood with amplified tones, that's what made her famous. Carlene was largely self-taught as both a scientist and a violin maker, but she ended up making major contributions to both of those fields. No one doubts that. But there is some doubt as to what exactly her contributions were. Today's episode is called Vibrational Patterns, and it's about Carlene, acoustic science, American domestic life in the 1940s, German science experiments in the 1780s, Italian violin making in the 1690s, and Christmas glitter. But before we get to that, here's some stuff you should know. Carlene died in 2009, but we have access to her voice thanks to James June Schneider. He's a filmmaker who interviewed Carlene for a documentary project and generously shared his tapes with me. You'll also hear from Quincy Whitney. She's a former arts reporter for the Boston Globe who became Carlene's biographer. Quincy spent a lot of time with Carlene toward the end of her life and is our guide through this story. The name Ernst Klodny is going to be important in a few minutes. He's the guy doing those science experiments in the 1780s. He's sometimes called the father of modern acoustics, and he met Napoleon once, just to put that in historical context. And if you haven't heard the word luthier before, it just means instrument maker. As for me, I'm Craig Ely. I'm recording this in my basement in Madison, Wisconsin. As for you, you're out there listening. And for the next 30 minutes, we're in this together. It's the very first episode of Field Noise. There is more to maintaining these radio circuits than simply throwing a switch and speaking into the microphone. That'll give you an idea of what it sounds like. I had a lot of fun playing viola for some years, but it's 
hard to keep going, and I had to choose. If I'd been a better player, I might have stuck with it. But my friends used to say, Carlene, if you want people to enjoy your instruments, don't demonstrate them yourself. <laughs> When she's teaching at the Brerley School for the first time, she finds out that her colleagues like chamber music, and they're all playing stringed instruments, and so they invite her to come to a session one night, and she's a trumpet player from college, right? And she brings her trumpet, and after one session, they, of course, all turn to her and say, you know, the trumpet's too loud for a Manhattan apartment, we really need a viola, as every string ensemble always needs a viola. So she goes out and buys a $75 viola, because she largely wants community. She's tense about the fact that she can't do what she wants to do. She was at a point in her career where she had a chance to take on about five jobs, and this is the way she told it to me, that she could have had. But she realized that she couldn't stay married. She couldn't have that domestic life, too, and do these jobs. So there was a frustration, there was a tension always building in her. A woman was expected to be a wife and not be pursuing career at all in the 1930s. It just wasn't acceptable. So the viola, playing the viola with this chamber music group and her friends, that becomes her community. Eventually, she it sort of sits in her hand, and she's been carving wood since she was five years old. She was a master wood carver by the time she was in high school. So she keeps looking at this viola thinking... Gee, maybe I could make one. Well, actually, I've been interested in wood and loved it ever since I can remember. I learned a lot about woodcraft, which has given me a feel for the trees and the woods and how they relate. This can be used for the half of the top of a violin. And the piece we, other piece we had is, well, this will be one half of it. Here's the other half. And this will make the top of a viola when it's put together. Now there are a couple of knots in here and the plan is to try to work around those knots so that they won't make trouble. So she made this viola and she's showing it around to her chamber music friends and they're playing it. And Helen Rice says, we really ought to go meet Frederick Saunders. He's a retired Harvard physicist who lives out in Western Massachusetts near my farm. We really ought to go and he had to just look at your instrument. So she does that. She hands him the instrument. Saunders takes it, taps it, looks at it closely, and turns to her and says, this is really a great first instrument. I'll be fascinated to see your next one. And at that point, she had not planned to make another one. And so Saunders hands her a couple copies of his um, scientific articles that he's done about violin acoustics primarily in his retirement as a sort of a passion that he's following because he's an avid string player. So he's written up some papers. They've been published, and now he hands his reprints to Carlene. She's never, you know, she's reading these papers written by a physicist, and she's thinking, you know, I didn't really understand the jargon at that point. And so she said, but the one thing I do notice, Dr. Saunders, is that most of the experiments you've been doing are putting the weight on the top of a bridge and testing it in a sound chamber. And he said, well, yes, because I'd, I don't want to ruin the instrument. And she said, well, what would you do if somebody could 
make you instruments that were expendable, that could be used in experiments. And he said, well, that sounds really rather crazy. Like what luthier would be crazy enough to make instruments that they're going to be destroyed? And she says, I will. If Saunders had been in the middle of his career... He wouldn't have time, number one. And there would have been this big hierarchy between a Harvard physicist who's a doctor, has his PhD, and this self-taught violin maker who lives in Montclair, New Jersey, who's working out of her kitchen. Here, 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 and here. I will make four separate tests, one after the other, and then I will turn the instrument over and make four separate tests on the back in the same places which I've marked carefully. When I get the tests, all eight tests together, I can tell by the amplitude of that particular air mode whether those four places of the top and those four places of the back are working in sync, shall we say. She ends up doing her research by reading about Felix Savar and what he does with suggesting about plate tuning. And so she's the first person who sort of puts together this idea of doing the Cladney patterns. Ernst Cladney had developed this this method of seeing sound by putting particles on a plate and vibrating and discovering that there are all these amazing geometric patterns at different frequencies. So the experiments that Kalani is interested in doing is to render these vibrations visible as well as audible at the same time. So he takes a metallic square plate, puts it on a stand, uh, sprinkles grains of sand on the plate, and then he takes a bow, and then he bows the plate perpendicular to one of the edges. This is Miles Jackson. I'm the professor of the history of science at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. And he also places his fingers on various portions of the plate. He takes the, the he bows with his right hand and, and touches the plate with his left in order to influence the way in which the plate vibrates. So what he does is he generates these amazing figures, quite aesthetically pleasing figures, but he's interested really in seeing what the actual patterns are and how that corresponds to pitch. Because he's first and foremost interested in, in inventing you know, musical instruments, which he does. And his argument is where the, where the dust settles, where you have those Claudney lines, that's where there are no vibrations. Right? That's where the plate is at zero. The vibrations of the plate cancel each other out. Claudney's interested in the bits of, of a metal plate that's not vibrating with the view of locating that bit so that you could put a, a piece of metal or a piece of glass or a piece of wood and you wouldn't change the volume or the, or the pitch uh, of, of the instrument. So then she thought, well, well what happens if we, if we try that on a violin plate? If you don't know what you're doing, there's no rules or boundaries for how you do it. This is a very nearly finished back of a viola. 
And what we're doing here is measuring the normal modes that exist in a piece of wood that's this shape with the contours that it has. It also is telling us everything that's happened to that piece of wood since the tree was started as a seed. It gives us the sense of the stiffness of the wood which violin makers have been feeling and bending for the last several hundred years. And that feel and that bending, this kind of bending, is what we're assessing here. Only what we're doing is we're giving it much more accurate measurement because we can tell from a loudspeaker under the table here and this equipment which gives us a sweep of the sine wave, a single frequency like a siren that goes through this wood. And at the particular frequencies where the normal modes occur, we will get some patterns because what I'm gonna do is sprinkle an aluminum flake, colored black. It's like Christmas glitter. Sometimes we use the, the glitter itself when we want to get something on a dark plate. And as I turn up the gains on this equipment here, you're going to see the actual patterns form. By focusing on particular modes, particular sound patterns at a certain frequency, she starts to see patterns that basically help her figure out where the plate is too thick. You know, she's got 10 plates she's working on. There's This plate's not got that perfect shape with the glitter. So she starts to use them to tune them in the sense that she's really having a visual aid to see about the arching of the plate. And that kind of innovation is what she discovers that the luthiers hate her because she's asking them to bring science into the workshop, you know? And even though music has been a science since the beginning of time, they have basically done things intuitively with their hands and they're not interested in science. Initially, I was pretty skeptical about science you know, sort of budding into violin making. But when I met Carlene, I was very impressed by her energy and enthusiasm. And I think I heard her give a talk at a conference and, and that was what led to uh, me inviting her to give this, this workshop. My guest tonight is world-renowned master violin maker, Joseph Curtin. Joseph crafts original, world-class violins for the 21st century at his studio right here in Ann Arbor. What plate tuning was intended to solve, I think from her point of view, was given a vast variety of wood that you, that you find as violin wood, how do, you, how do you optimize it for a given instrument? And you know, there's a notion that um, you can tune it to some ideal um, frequency and, and that should do the trick. Typically, violin makers, you know, feel the stiffness of the wood. They bend in various ways and use normal workshop practice to, to arrive at graduations. There's no evidence that the old Italians or anyone else really had done plate tuning, um, or not non-scientists anyway. 
Um, but she was proposing a practical system um, for use in the workshop, and as such, it was very appealing. You know, there was a, a famous cover of Scientific American in the 80s, which showed a, a number of photographs of violin tops and backs with the, um, uh, the vibration patterns revealed through, uh, there was little bits of glitter or tea leaves, and the violins had been vibrated in the the tea leaves bounced off the areas where it was vibrating and settled in the areas where it wasn't vibrating. And Carlene had done demonstrations of that on a few different frequencies. And there was this very striking cover. And, you know, I think that that was the first time that many people had that view of the instrument. And it was like, whoa, this is more like, a, you know, it's a Mr. Science project. It's not a Renaissance artist project. So um, the fact that you could see these vibration patterns and you could tune them meant that that's what people were focusing on. My name is Sam Zygmuntowicz. I'm a violin maker. I have my studio in Brooklyn, New York. What I'm interested in now is to see what the waves that are traveling through the wood are like. And those are the things that I think are making a lot of difference in the way energy and the waves of energy can go through the wood itself. And the wood is all sorts of sort of discontinuities, if you will, that will make the energy have to slow down or go around something. It's a little bit like a river flowing. And if you put some rocks on the edge of a river, you'll change the whole flow of the river downstream. I think that's what's happening in violins. There are certain ways that those uh, blockages, the discontinuities, can be worked out. And that's the kind of thing I'm looking for, is to see what happens. Because some of the beautiful old instruments that I've been working with and testing show that there's a good deal of this sort of thing going on. The thing is, she left out how heavy the plates were, and if you don't if you don't know how dense the the wood is, then tuning the plates to get some ideal frequency can lead to counterintuitive results. She also got caught up with this notion of tuning in octaves, which is sort of a seductive notion that you know the proportion of an octave you know goes back to the, sort of the music of the spheres um, type of thinking. But there is really no scientific basis in that. So I think she got a little off, uh, a little astray with that. She, she claimed to have measured a, the plates of a Strad violin and found that it was in octaves, at least two octaves. And um, I, I don't doubt that that exists, it, it, it happens. They tend to arrive naturally with normal graduations in the area of an octave, but there's two problems. One is, if it is an octave, does that make any difference to the final sound? And the second, why would it? I mean, you know, look, you've got to actually establish a causal connection before you try and convince violin makers to use it. But she kind of skipped that step as far as I can tell. You know, as soon as people could see the pattern on the top and back with the tea leaves, they thought, okay, well, you know, um, look, look at a few good violins and we think the top should be tuned to uh, um, you know, a 360 and then uh, it should be half of that for mode two and then mode one should be half of that 
again. And if all three are lined up, that was a, an idea, tritone tuning, which meant there was, a, there was all in octaves. And people really worked to get that, and you can get it. Turns out that, that good violins in general are not tuned in tritones. But it was a very satisfying idea. So um, a lot of people spent a lot of time doing tritone tuning. And I'm sure a lot of them got very nice results too. However, if you do a broad study of old violins, it's not what you see. In fact, there's, you know, the tuning of the, the top and the back. It's just one of a hundred factors and not necessarily the most important one. You know, the project that I was involved with, uh, Strad 3D, it was the first attempt to capture the vibration patterns of Strads and Guarneri's in 3D. So you could see how much it was moving forward and backwards and side to side. And then to create animations that you could see for any given note or every, any given frequency, you could see in what way the violin was vibrating. And one of the things about the violin, which is when you actually see all these patterns, which is totally uh, unexpected, is the, the violin is not vibrating in one way it is vibrating in a hundred different ways, all simultaneously, or many of them simultaneously. So it's like a horse is galloping and on the horse is the saddle and on the saddle is a person and on the person is a fly. And they're all doing things at the same time and we're all moving and the earth is spinning and it's all moving through the universe. It's, a, you know, it's almost that level of complexity for a violin. Everything's happening at the same time. So it's quite difficult to tease out single motions. But you know, the implication is clear that the very tantalizing promise for a maker is that if you could see the structure, then you'd have a shot at changing the structure. And if you could change the structure, you could change the sound. So that was a real switch. You know, the, the, the romance of the violin is sort of built around the idea that there's this object that's been designed by man, but almost by, with divine intervention. And it works in ways that we don't understand. And we can't even do it nowadays is sort of the mythology. It involves some lost knowledge. And then it, it is a, a very romantic vision and, and, not, and uh, one that I enjoy as well. However, if you are a composer, you don't want to hear that Beethoven's the only guy who can compose. And if you're a violin maker, you don't want to hear that Stradivari is the only guy who can make violins. There's this notion, wildly popular around the world, that science somehow is not up to discovering the mystery of Stradivari. There's sort of an archetypal announcer saying, you know, for centuries, scientists have struggled in vain to discover the secrets of Stradivari. Really? In vain? Why in vain? Have you read any of the papers? There's actually fantastic work done. What, what, was, what was never done and could have been done is to do blind tests and see if there really was a difference between Stradivari and any other instrument sound. Um, so before you want to invent a theory about why a certain phenomena is the case, you want to make sure that it's, it exists. And no one really bothered to do that until the last few years when we started doing double blind tests. We got first in Indianapolis and in Paris. We got In Paris we had 10 violin soloists and six old Italian violins, five of them strads and six new instruments. and had the soloist blind test them, and it turned out that the soloist, the most preferred violin easily was a new violin, the least preferred was a Strad, and we did the same thing with audience. The audiences found the new ones projected better, and, and the subsequent test in New York showed that they also preferred new, um, they preferred what projected better. So there was absolutely no evidence that the Strads had any qualities that even first-rate players could detect. Oh yeah, none of them could tell the difference between new and old at better than chance. 
So it was a big, kind of a big anticlimax, and it got a lot of publicity, and there's probably people who still don't believe it, but it's, it's pretty hard science. Um, I don't know, but what else can we learn? Um, <laughs> it's, that's a very iconoclastic finding. Um, either violin making has got a lot better in recent decades, and or there was never such a big difference as the public imagination has supposed. I think there's been a big advance because A, there's a market, there's a you know, huge number of violinists and very few old violins left and not many of those are, are very good. So as soon as you have a market, then you, you can actually earn a living making a violin now. You couldn't really in past decades, you know, you had to do repairs and restoration. So there's that. Then there's the crucial thing, which I think Carlene Hutchins helped with, which was sharing of information. The traditional European guild system held things very private. So as soon as you get sharing and a bunch of people doing things, things are, are going to get better. I mean, violin makers, professional violin makers would look at her and say, well, she's really a scientist. And I think some scientists would look at her and say, ah, well, she's really a, a violin maker. <laughs> uh, um, but, but I think everyone, at least certainly the scientists I've talked to who know it, you know, would, would absolutely credit her with, uh, in a major way with you know, getting the field going in America at the time. Carlene, as a largely self-taught woman luthier, she found a niche where she was doing something really unique and wasn't just being, wasn't competing head-to-head with, with, you know, whatever prejudices she would have met as a woman. I mean, if you want to think about it, I hadn't really thought about this before, but that someone who was, uh, that tradition would normally have excluded might have an interest in skirting that tradition and finding an alternate narrative I mean, as far as that goes, you know, I'm Jewish, and in the golden era of violin making, no Jews would have been allowed for, or few, uh, to join guilds and things like that, you know? You know, we can't enter the culture that produced Strads and Guarneries. We, you know, we can't, we can't go back. We wouldn't fit in if we were there. We can't go back there anyway. So it's up to us to pick the parts that that, that speak to us, and it's uh, our um, prerogative to find whatever points of entry and any way to enhance it and take it forward. And it's it's not about tradition for tradition's sake. It's tradition because it holds all the empirical knowledge that's been you know that's 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 stuck in there. But it's not the only knowledge. The beauty of instruments, first of all, there's the paradox in the string world because you have makers who swear they know what they're doing, but the true test is with the player. And the player is also unable to really translate back to the maker, right? So there's this subjective interchange between what the player thinks is perfect and sounds perfect and all that and what the luthier actually knows. And so you can diminish your science if you want, but there are musicians who would disagree with you. Her legacy is nothing short of overturning the violin world in several different ways. I think if Carlene had been a man, she would have been coronated for her field. Carlene opened the door 
and started a dialogue. Suddenly, there was not the secrecy of sentries and people guarding their work. Well, I don't know, if a man had come along, would he have had the same inclusive paradigm? I don't know. And whether it was gender only, her paradigm was to be open and to share. And I have to say that there wasn't that paradigm before. She would want the science to move on. She was open to the dialogue. You know, she did it. She did everything. She wore every hat you could possibly wear in her field. You know, author, catalyst, editor. She did it all and transformed the whole, the whole climate. And I've been going around feeling the trees in this area or feeling the trees down in Montclair as I take a walk along the street. I'm sure people think I'm a little crazy, but it's very exciting to put your hands on a big tree and then move them slowly away and back again and feel the energy that's coming out of that trunk. The song you're hearing right now is courtesy of Her Space Holiday. Special thanks to Mark for his enthusiasm about field noise right when I really needed it. The show's theme song from earlier is by Slow Machete. Their music is based on samples recorded in Haiti, with all of the proceeds going back into Haitian communities. The rest of the music in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks so much to James June Schneider for sharing his tapes of Carlene, and to Quincy Whitney for making Carlene's story known through her award-winning biography, American Luthier, Carlene Hutchins, The Art and Science of the Violin. There's so much more to this story than we could fit into this episode. Please check out that book. Thanks again to Joseph Curtin and Sam Zygmuntovich for taking the time to explain how violins work and how they make them. Thanks also to Miles Jackson for talking to me about Ernst Clodney's life and work. Colin Ritchie and Pete Becker provided some much-needed technical advice at various stages in this project. Kirill Owen is my engineering inspiration. Steve Paulson and Ann Strainchamps and the whole staff of To the Best of Our Knowledge taught me how radio gets made. The logo and other visual elements of the show, including fieldnoise.com, which I hope you'll visit, were designed by Charles Barrows and the crew at Art & Sons. Field Noise is produced, recorded, edited, and mixed by me. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend and leave a review somewhere. Anywhere, really. Just, just leave one. You can also follow Field Noise on Instagram, where I post little videos and sound clips. I'm Craig Ely. Until next time, keep your ears open and look alive out there. <laughs>